Welcome to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. Pastor Andy Oliver is our Bible teacher and expositor. Today's message is from Nehemiah 9, Awakening. Please take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah, chapter 9. American history has, and actually world history, has been filled over the centuries by intermittent revivals, awakenings. Now, what is a revival? Is revival an increase in church attendance? A greater religious awareness? A shift to a more traditional morality in society? Now, these will usually follow on the heels of a revival, but they are not the cause for revival. A revival is not not reforming something, fixing something, repairing something. Another term for this phenomenon is also an awakening, and I think that that better fits the idea. People who were spiritually dead are brought to life. That is an awakening from the dead. And those who are God's children are being awakened from their their lethargy, their, their apathy regarding the things of God, and to active service. Now, throughout history, there have been a multitude of these things. Times when people saw their need of forgiveness from God and a right relationship with Him. Sometimes they've come in conjunction with dynamic preaching and sometimes not. Other times, for no apparent cause, they just sort of happen. But they've always come in clear conjunction with the Scripture. A clear presentation of the Scripture is needful. And in all cases, it is a working of the Spirit of God in the hearts of people in conjunction with the preaching of the Word of God. In Nehemiah chapter 9, we see an awakening. It follows a a period of time where they had heard the Word of God, and they heard it taught and preached, not just read, but taught and preached, and saw through the object lessons of the Feast of of Trumpets, the Feast of Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement, all, by the way, in quick conjunction with one another in the fall, they saw this, their need of repentance and faith. Now, as we saw a little bit the last two weeks, we're going to see it again here. Look in verse 1 of of Nehemiah chapter 1. It says, Now in the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and with sackcloths and with earth upon them. So this is after the first of Feast of Trumpets on the 1st, after the Day of Atonement on the 10th, and after the Feast of Tabernacles on the 14th. It says that they came and assembled and they were repenting. That's what the whole idea of the sackcloth and ashes is. We'll, we'll come back to that in just a moment. What is repentance? Now, for those of you who are in the Sunday school lesson, you already got the, the heads up on this. But the word repentance means literally to change your mind. I'm going to do a a 180 in my thinking. Very often people who are religious, and it doesn't matter what the religion is, very often in the guise of Christianity this is the case, that we have a self-righteous attitude. So we always kind of look down our noses at that, and yet the reality is, that the vast majority of humanity that believe in any sort of a hereafter have in the back of their mind that I have to be good in order to gain heaven. That somehow or another I need to measure up. I need to, to do the do's and not do the don'ts. And if I balance it out just right, then I'll make it. I'm good to go because I'm a good person. I hear that all the time. 
that I'll make it if I'm, if I'm simply good enough. And yet the reality is that none of us are good enough. No one can measure up. The Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is not a single person who is good enough to make it to heaven. I can't do it on my own. I don't even participate in this as far as contributing anything. I can't. It isn't my works and something. It is Christ alone. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. I had a phone call this past week from somebody I hadn't heard from in a number of years. Somebody that I had shared the gospel with many times in the past. They live in another state. And I had, and, and, and she called me. And, uh, uh, we were interrupted during the course of the phone call. I talked to her for about 40 minutes or, or so. And I was interrupted by a nurse. She was calling me from a hospital. She had been going about her business and she had blacked out. And the next thing she knew, she woke up three weeks later in a, in a hospital bed. She'd had a, uh, a bout with, uh, with meningitis. And she was going to be in the hospital for probably another month or so. And she called me because I had, uh, I had done the, the memorial service for her mother and she had heard the gospel at that time and she had questions. And she's wrestling with this idea of, of I'm trying to be a good person. But the Bible says that it, that it isn't being good. I can't be good enough. It says all our righteousnesses, all the things that I do are as filthy rags. I can't buy off God, which is what really this amounts to. I can't, I can't give God, cause what, frankly, what does God need? God made it all! He doesn't need anything. I have nothing that I could give to God that He would say, wow, I've never seen one of those before. Boy, I'd really like to have that. I can't do anything for God that would impress God. On the contrary, most of my life, my thinking, my thoughts, my words, have all been Really, my efforts to defy and rebel against God. I want to have my own way. And so even though I know what I'm supposed to do, either by conscience or, or things I have been told, I am determined to go my own, my own way. And this is why the scripture says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. I am pursuing my, my own way. I live a life of a rebel. And I can't help myself. I am enslaved by my sin. I am, I am overwhelmed by, by the, uh, a, a crushing burden to do the wrong thing. And if I make up my mind, well, I'm, I'm gonna turn over a new leaf. I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm gonna, I'm gonna start being, name, got my list. I will never measure up to even the things that I desire to do. We, we discover that every January 1st, don't we? That we, oh, I'm, this year I'm gonna, this year I'm gonna lose weight. This year I'm gonna join the gym. This year I'm gonna do this. This year I'm gonna, and, and, and we have, we come to it with good intentions. And we fail. And we fail. And we fail. And the reason is, I can't do it. I can't be good. And I can never eliminate the debt that I owe to God because I have sinned against Him. The people, the children of Israel repented. They changed their mind. They changed their mind about their own self-righteousness. That somehow or another, I can be good in the eyes of God. I changed my mind about my my not needing this in the first place. Because understand that you have to live someplace forever. Whether you like it or not. 
Whether you like this idea or not, you will live someplace forever. You can't avoid it. You are an eternal being. You will be someplace for all eternity. And there's a God that we have to answer to. Now, I don't like that idea either, but there's a God in heaven that I have to answer to. Where will I spend eternity? It isn't, I'm not the one that decides that. I'm not the one who makes up the rules about how I get to be in heaven or paradise or in hell. I'm not the one who, who makes those rules. God is the one who makes those rules. And so God is the one that I'm answerable to. I'm not answerable because of my own ideas, my own thoughts, my own, my own, uh, my own views on these things. I need to change my mind. I need to change my thinking. I need to see sin as God sees sin. I need to see that wickedness is indeed wickedness. You know, the book of Isaiah says that, that people flip things around. That we call good evil and we call evil good. We have, we, we twist things around to accommodate ourselves. Religion is all about creating a God that I like. I create a God in my image. I create a God that likes me. And so I envision God as a particular way, and I, and I, I create a God in my own mind that I can measure up to, that I can manipulate. He's my genie. And that's how people think so often today. We, we have uh, uh, what I call buffet religion. That I go through, I go down the line, I got my plate of my desires, what I want, and I take a scoop of this, and I take a scoop of this, and I may even take a little bit of this because I know it's good for me, and I'll throw a little bit of that on there. But, you know, I like to hang out at the desserts because that's the stuff I really like. And when I'm all done, I got something that will satisfy me. But it's probably not very good for me. And the reality is that we create religion to satisfy ourselves without any regard as to whether or not it satisfies God. And he's the one that counts. I need to change my mind. I need to repent. I need to, to see my need of forgiveness. That number one, I am not good. That there are consequences for all that I think and do and say. That I will be held accountable for these things. You know, we appreciate it when somebody else is held accountable. If we, we read the paper, does anybody read the papers? We read, we read a headline somewhere on the web. And we hear about some great crime that was committed. And the guy got away with it. Oh, oh, that's awful. Oh, that's horrible. I hope they catch him. And then they, then they catch him. Yeah! They got the guy. And, uh, boy, I hope he gets his. Now, we always hope that for justice for somebody else. But if we are the criminal, if we are the criminal, we want to pass. Alright? I'm driving down 167. And all of a sudden, I see a, a blue light in my rearview mirror. I immediately, without even thinking, take my foot off the gas pedal. Because I know in my heart of hearts that I am usually guilty. And then when he pulls up behind me and I hear a siren, now, I'm in, I, now I know I'm in real trouble. And so I, I pull over. Now... When he, and then I, and I'm scrambling, I get my license, my proof of insurance. Boy, I hope I let put that in the car. I hope I, is it up to date? Yes. Okay. We're, got the registration, got all the things ready, and I, I'm ready to pass the, the papers to the officer. Now, what am I hoping? I'm hoping he's going to tell me that I have a taillight out. I'm hoping that he will give me a warning. I'm hoping that he will be merciful. I'm hoping he will be gracious. 
There's been a couple of times where I have had somebody fly past me, just fly past me, and they're weaving through traffic, and you say, man, where are the police? And then you go up another three miles, and you see the guy on the side of the road, and you go, yeah. (laughs) We love justice when it's the other guy. But when it's us, we want mercy. God is just. And he must punish sin. And we always think it's okay for the other guy. But when I'm held to account for my thoughts and my words and my deeds, if I'm honest, I am in desperate need of mercy. I am in desperate need of grace. Now, what's the difference between those two things? Grace is God giving me something I don't deserve. That's why it's salvation is a gift. And God's mercy is his withholding what I really do deserve. I'm not going to get the ticket. And God is gracious and merciful because he's loving. I need to change my mind about the nature of God. I need to change my mind about my standing before God. I need to see that I am in need of a Savior and that I am, in gu- I am guilty and need of mercy. The children of Israel changed their behavior. We read this in in the book of Jonah about the Ninevites. They changed their behavior. What what did they why did they change their behavior? Because they had a change of mind. You change your mind first. They repented first. There was a recognition that a change was necessary. Now by the way, let me let me clarify. Salvation is not is not uh, changing my behavior. Changing my behavior is a result of my salvation. We often put the cart before the horse. Salvation has already been given. I receive Christ as my Savior. Why is it that Christians then do all the, why are they, why are they goodies? Why are they, why are they always better than everybody else? It's out of gratitude. I serve God out of gratitude and thanksgiving. I don't earn it to earn brownie points with God. I can't earn brownie points with God. Remember, here's a God who doesn't need anything. So I serve Him out of gratitude and thanksgiving. I love Him because He first loved me. Why did they wear sackcloth and ashes? It was an outward sign of the the inward reality. Discomfort and filth. What is sackcloth? Um, Modern edition of that would be burlap. All right, so it's uh, it's been a hot day. We've had some of those. So I'm going to put on my my burlap sweater, my burlap blazer, without a (laughs) t-shirt. You can just feel the itch, can't you? It's uncomfortable. And the whole idea is humiliation and grief for their disobedience. It's an outward sign of what was going on in their hearts. And so the the whole assembly gathered together wearing sackcloth. And they had dirt on themselves, ashes and so forth. And one of the things they did when they repented, it says in verse 2, "...in the seed of Israel..." separated themselves from all strength, from all strength, that'd be the foreigners, and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. Now let's pause here. Why did they separate? Why did they, and we see other places where they were told to separate from the Ammonites and the Moabites and some of the other, 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 other ites that lived around them. Why were they to do that? Why were they to separate from the, from the different ites that were around them? Well, it's because they were idolaters. 
because they practiced infanticide. They took their, their babies and burned them alive in the fire to their false gods. And there was a long history of the, of their corrupting influence on Israel. They were warned of this in Exodus chapter 23 and verse 24. And if they had simply obeyed, you know, I'm reading through the Old Testament right now. And for the most part, there's exceptions. You have periodic revivals, awakenings. But most of the time, as you read Israel's history, a history that is recorded for, for over 700 years in your Old Testament, you have a parade of disasters, a parade of disobedience, a parade of idolatry and murder and all these different things that, that went on in conjunction with these, these things. Why did that happen? Because they wouldn't obey the idea of we need to separate from idolatry. And it was a perpetual problem. It was the reason that Jerusalem was destroyed. It was a reason they were carried off into captivity to Babylon. It was a reason that they, for hundreds of years, became part of other nations' empires. There were also those that corrupted the truth. At the time that Nehemiah was written, you had uh, various idolaters to the, to the east and the west and the south. But to the north... You had people that claimed to worship the God of Israel. You had the Samaritans. They claimed to worship the God of Israel. But what they had done, what the Samaritans had done, is they had had corrupted the truth. They claimed to worship the God of Israel, but they, they deviated from the Scriptures. God, understand this, God must be worshipped on God's terms. I don't call the shots. Just as in salvation, I don't call the shots. And so in my worship, I don't call the shots. I don't develop a, a form of worship that I find satisfactory, that appeals to me, that makes me feel good, that I like this and I like this and I come here because it's fun. If that's your, your reason for being here, then you're worshiping yourself. You're not worshiping God. God must be worshiped on his terms. And so often we end up pleasing ourselves instead of pleasing God because that's not what we're thinking about. That's not why we're here. The Samaritans also blended other religious ideas with the truth, and we have a tendency to do that. I mentioned the buffet religion. Yeah, there's a lot of Christian components in the things that I believe. I've had Bible studies with loads of people sharing the gospel, going through a four-session Bible study called The Exchange. And I go through these things, and I'll have somebody say, yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. And we go down four, five, six different things. Yes, I believe that. Yes, I believe that. And they go, but, but let me, I got a problem with this. Or, or let, let, me, let me talk to you about this. Because we'll go through and they, they have, they've added four or five or six of those things to their, to their tray. But then they run across something that, that they find disagreeable. Something that, that, that rubs their, their, rubs them the wrong way. There's something that actually makes them feel uncomfortable. And so I'm gonna reject that. And very often it's a key thing. And it's the thing that they are wrestling with. So I'm gonna set that one aside because I don't like it because it makes me feel uncomfortable. Instead, I'll go back to all the things that make me feel good about myself because, after all, I'm a good person. And it's the great lie because I'm not. And so we blend all these religious ideas. We corrupt the truth. We mix truth with error. And if I take truth and mix it with error, you know, take a scoop of this, scoop of this, run it through the blender, push the button, run it up that. What have I got that comes out of the blender? It's error. Maybe a different flavor, maybe a different color, but it's still error. Truth mixed with error is always error. Truth gets corrupted by error. If I've got, 
if I've got two gloves on my hand, one is a, is a beautiful kid glove, white glove here, and the other one is one that I, I put on because I was going to be changing the oil on my car. And this one's all gooey and nasty, and then I've got this, and then if I do this. Yes, I'm going to fix the gooey, nasty glove because it's going to be cleaned up by that beautiful white glove. When I'm all done, you can't tell which one's which. Truth mixed with error always corrupts the truth. Poisoned food is always toxic. And when you take truth and blend it with error, you create a new form of error. And by the way, this is the never-ending trend in Christendom. Those who claim to be Christians, we go from God's grace, that God gives us salvation as a gift, to what most people who claim to be Christians, that it's, it becomes works. That I, I have to get baptized, I have to be confirmed, I have to cross my T's and dot my I's, I have to obey the golden rule, I have to, and you go down all down the list, because everybody's got their various components of these things, but that is not what the Bible teaches. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It says nothing about baptism. It says nothing about church membership. It says nothing about confirmation. It has nothing to say about being a good person. I am perishing. But I have a savior that if I trust him, if I believe in him, I'll have everlasting life. Salvation is a simple thing. Salvation is a gift that God has provided for us. And yet, so much of what goes under the guise of Christianity has corrupted it into something that I earn. They turn God's gift into something that I have to merit, something I have to work for. And so when we deviate from God's word, understand we're doing several things. Number one, we're saying that God's ideas, or excuse me, man's ideas are better than God's, God's word. We undermine the scripture. We substitute man's thoughts for God's thoughts. We allow tradition to supplant the place of scripture. When Jesus was arguing with the, the Pharisees, and we see a lot of that in the gospel accounts, what was, what were the arguments about? The arguments for the most part were about religion. And what were they about? It was Tradition on the side of the Pharisees and the scripture on the side of Jesus. The Pharisees claimed to believe the scriptures too, but they had their traditions. And every religion that has a, an authority of tradition, and there's quite a few of them, when it gets down to it, when push comes to shove, what is the higher authority, their tradition or the scripture? Because they're always going to run into conflict. Man-made ideas are always going to be in conflict with the scripture. And when you have these two there, which one is going to have the higher authority in reality if there's, a, if there's a conflict? Always the tradition. And that's why we need to hold to the Scripture alone. The Bible is to be our sole rule of faith and practice. Anytime we adjust that, we corrupt God's Word, and we make man's ideas more important and more authoritative than God's Word. Jesus pointed this thing out in Mark chapter 7 and verse 8. Accusing the Pharisees, he said, For you lay aside the commandment of God, ye hold the traditions of men. And then we have the devil's lie. In the Garden of Eden, Eve is sitting there in the garden. Now, a perfect environment. A perfect environment. There is no sin, no wrongdoing yet in the world. 
And Eve hears something for the first time. She hears a challenge to God's authority. But it sounds so good. The devil said, yea, hath, hath God said? Did God really say this? A lie is anything other than the truth. If two and two equals four, there's one right answer, unless it's new math. But there's one right answer. How many wrong answers are there? How many numbers are there? Or even fractions or percentages or anything else? The wrong answers are infinite. There's only one truth. And a lie is anything other than the truth. And lies come in infinite forms, and they're always ingenuity, always coming up with new ones. Anything contrary to what God has said is the lie. And so these people repented, and then they separated. And then they did this. this we saw this last time. This is amazing to me. He says, uh, they stood and confessed their sins and their iniquity and the iniquities of their father. They stood in their place and read in the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of the day. So for three hours, maybe four, the people stood there and heard the word of God read and explained. Standing there, outdoors, for three or four hours. And then it says, for a fourth part, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. For half the day, they did this. They were immersed in the scriptures. A repetition, and expansion of what had already been going on for the previous several weeks. They weren't satisfied. I need more. I want to know more of what God says. A continued hunger for the word of God. One of the things that's very interesting, if somebody actually gets saved, if somebody puts their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the things that automatically happens, it's the work of the Holy Spirit of God, is that you develop an appetite for this book. Now, I will tell you this. Lost folks, people do not know the Lord as Savior, do not love this book. They don't have an appetite for this book. I've talked to folks, have you ever read the Bible? Yeah, I didn't get it. Or, I don't understand what you guys find so fascinating about that Bible. I just, oh my word. But you get saved, you trust the Lord, man, you, you just, you start devouring this. Most of us, when we got saved, we, we, even if we, I got saved reading a gospel tract. I did not get into a church for another close to two years. And during that time, I plowed through a King James version that my, my grandparents had given me. As a young person, I didn't understand a lot of what I read. But I had an appetite, a hunger for the Word of God. I looked forward to being in the Word of God. This is something that, that is that comes with salvation. And these people had a hunger for the Word of God. They weren't satisfied with what they had gotten before. There was a continuing hunger for the Word of God. And they were reading it and hearing it explained and taught for at least between three and four hours a day. Preaching is the God-ordained Means, primary means of, of getting the, the word out. In Romans chapter 10 verses 14 and 15, it says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him, him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except to be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And by the way, I'm not talking about just the guy who's behind the pulpit. But when you go out there and you share the gospel with somebody, 
You share your testimony. You tell somebody else how to be saved. You're doing that job of preaching. The declaration of the, the good news. One of the things that's, we don't see this very much. This is an indicator of the spiritual condition of our country. And some of you are old enough and have been believers long enough to remember that what, when this was the case. You go back, remember the days of Bible conferences? Remember the days when they would hold special meetings someplace and, and they would have a week of, of, uh, of meetings dealing with prophecy or they would have a, de- a week of meetings dealing with evangelism or they would have a week of meetings dealing with a, a particular... And people would travel and they would camp and they would come to these things. Now, most of the, mo- those have mostly gone away. But in the old days, when, when, when we had people being saved in large numbers, the Bible conferences were important. People had a hunger and appetite for the Word of God. They wanted more. An evangelist would come to town and he would hold meetings for two weeks and the congregation would come every night and bring visitors and pretty soon it would be packed. I know a preacher who, who did this in 1972 and they filled the building and they had to rent the, the junior high school and they filled the gymnasium in 1972 in Washington. People had a hunger for the word of God and they confessed their sin. Not to each other, but to God. God is the one I'm accountable to. There was a recognition of their guilt. You know, it's a fascinating thing. People feel guilty. Why is it that we are, for the most part, I mean, there's other reasons as well, but why is it for the most part that we, we have a, a, just a huge multitude of, of counselors and psychiatrists and all these? What, what is the main thing that people are wrestling with? It's guilt. We're wrestling with various, various forms of guilt. And I want you to know that the primary reason people feel guilty is because they are. And of course, we have all these different methods, different efforts to assuage the guilt. That it's not my fault. I feel guilty, but it's not my fault. I'll blame my circumstances. I'll blame somebody else. Or I just can't help it. It's the way I am. And if that's the case, then ultimately I'm blaming God. He made me this way, and therefore I'm not responsible for my actions. Or the way I feel or anything else. Another excuse is, well, the guilt isn't real. It's just a fabrication of my mind. I, I really didn't do anything wrong. And so what we do is we, we change the standard. And we end up with, again, self-righteousness. I don't have any reason to feel, good, feel guilty because I'm good. I'm a good person. Yeah, but the reason you feel guilty is because you're not a good person. You're just conning yourself. You're convincing yourself. You're fooling yourself. Another excuse is, I, I feel guilty about what isn't really wrong. And, of course, we have seen this in overdrive in the last decade or so, where we have the normalization of depravity. The seeking, the demanding and seeking of acceptance. And, again, turning the tables 180, going the other way. that We make evil good and make good evil. And we have the lie that God's standard is a lie. Oh, God didn't say that. We have subjectivity that we, we turn things around, we twist things. And we have this attitude in our in the present that society dictates morality. I can't begin to tell you how dangerous that is. You know, we can go to different times and different cultures where certain ethnic groups were exterminated, imprisoned, all their goods confiscated, the women raped, all these things because certain things were acceptable according to the culture of the time. When society dictates morality, we are subjecting ourselves to the morality 
of an ever-changing culture and society that will legitimize murder and rape and child abuse and theft and anti-Semitism and anything else you want to add to the list. Because all those things have been justified at various times in human history in various places. It's an endless list. Historically, humanity has justified all forms of wickedness. Humanity is not the standard. God is the standard. God has given us an absolute of right and wrong, and it's in his book. And you and I, whether we like it or not, are accountable to what God has said. In Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, the prophet has a vision of heaven. And he sees God in his holiness. And Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He recognizes not only his own depravity, but the depravity of the culture he lives in. And so what is the need? The same thing that we saw with the people in the days of Nehemiah. The need of confession. Confession of my guilt, my sin. A recognition of my need of a Savior. My need of forgiveness. How do I deal with my guilt? Do I ignore it? Do I pretend it isn't there? No, what I need is forgiveness. I need forgiveness. It is really the only remedy for guilt. The only way to have a right relationship with a holy and just God. He offers us grace and mercy, but he is holy and just. He is either the judge or the savior. If we won't be accept his grace and mercy, his gift, then he will be our judge. And I can only come to God on God's terms. God is the one who offers me salvation. God is the one who determines the hereafter. God is the one who provided the savior. God is the one whom I have offended in my sin. And God is the one that determines where I will spend eternity. You are an eternal being. You will spend eternity someplace. Where will that be? It is unavoidable. Where will you spend eternity? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you that salvation is not something that I have to earn because I could never do it. Father, thank you that Christ on Calvary's cross bore the penalty of my sin. And I receive the benefit of that simply by trusting Jesus. And Father, if there's somebody here today that has never trusted Christ as Savior, if they're uncertain as to where they're going to spend eternity, or perhaps they know and they're afraid, Father, I pray that today might be that day of salvation. And Father, for those who have received this gift, Father, may we live lives of gratitude and thanksgiving. And Father, may we be awakened from our lethargy, from our indifference, and resume a life of gratitude and thanksgiving and love for the Savior. We pray for Christ's sake. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Grace Baptist Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to know more about faith in Jesus Christ or more about our ministry, please visit www.gracebaptistpuyallup.org. Until next time, may you walk worthy of the Lord.